0: Take your Bibles, if you would please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to begin reading in verse 28 of Matthew 11 through uh, much of chapter 12. Matthew 11 verse uh, 28. Uh, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the black holes that were in the ceiling have been filled with those square speakers that are there, and uh, it just reminds me of their new presence, right? it gives me an opportunity to uh, express thanks to the uh, volunteers who have been trying to learn the new system, master the new system, and as uh, we uh, try to use it all the way through the building, it's uh, been a steep learning curve, but we are grateful to God for the new equipment that enables us to do uh, many things, so uh, we're thankful to these uh, uh, men thus far uh, for their uh, work. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God. And he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or, haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Going from on, on from that place, he went into their synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus, they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He said to them, If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees, Went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel, he will not cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, in his name, the nations will put their hope. Today's sermon is for the weary and the burdened. If you're here this morning and you're not weary and burdened, you can listen in if you want to, but this is really for the weary and the burdened. And my hope in the time that we have together in the scriptures is I want to show you how Matthew fleshes out the invitation that Jesus offers in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He wants you to think about this a lot. What does Jesus mean when he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you Rest. Actually, he devotes the next few scenes in Matthew chapter 12 to unfolding how Jesus is the one with the wisdom and the power and the mercy to give rest to the weary and the burdened. Now, what sort of burdens might Jesus have in mind in this passage? We thought about it a little bit last week. This is a broad invitation to the weary and the burdened. And yet the text itself, by context in Matthew, it does help narrow things down a little bit. I, if, if the... Uh, burdens that are specific to the context don't apply to you. Uh, that does not mean you're out of the promise that's in verse 28. But here are some things that Jesus particularly has in mind, two types of burdens that arise from the context. And the first one, I will say, is oppression. Oppression. Regardless of the era in which you become a follower of Jesus or the culture in which you follow him, following Jesus will put you out of step with the world around you. Up. Uh, he had prepared, a Matthew, uh, sorry, Jesus had prepared the disciples for this back in Matthew chapter 10 when he was going to send them out on their first ministry tour. He prepared them for the persecution, the opposition, the arguments that were going to come. And even back in Matthew chapter 5 verse 11, look what Matthew five eleven says. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now, if their period were there in the sentence, no one would consider themselves blessed, and Jesus would be crazy to say that, right? Hey, blessed are you when people hate you. This is great. No, no, no. But you are blessed when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because you're a follower of me. This uh, controversy that's in Matthew chapter 12 that we're going to dig into in a little bit, um, it prompted the Pharisees to go and plan to murder Jesus. Shall we expect uh, better in this world and following him? I mean, think about it. We don't even represent Jesus that well. We're kind of meager at it, kind of mediocre at it. We're, We're not nearly as patient as he is, not kind, not close to being as wise as he is. How does. He always knows in every situation what to say. He always knows what will be perfect to say. And sometimes I just get frustrated and I just get angry. I just get afraid and, and I, I, I just don't represent Jesus well. He, he represented and did, spoke God's word perfectly. And they plotted to kill him. Shall we expect less as his followers? This section of of Matthew that we're in helps us understand perhaps one of the questions or one of the arguments that Matthew's original readers would have experienced. Uh, This maybe helps us a little bit see how Matthew itself is put together. You can imagine these early followers of Jesus receiving a question like this. They might have said, hey, so you're a follower of Jesus, and especially in that first century, If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, if he's the one that God promised to the Jewish people, why is it that so many of the Jewish people rejected him and didn't welcome him as Messiah? How can you explain that if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, why are there not more Jewish followers of him? Uh, That's a good question. And Matthew is trying to help us in telling these accounts, uh, uh, describing these situations. Matthew's trying to help his readers, his original readers, answer that question. That's probably not a question that you get a lot, but it does help us remember that every follower of Jesus, regardless of the era or culture in which you live, should expect there to be objections and questions and uh, arguments and opposition, and that can be wearying. It can be a wearying burden to follow Jesus upstream so significantly. Now, there's another type of burden that's in this passage that Jesus perhaps has in mind in Matthew 11, and it is the burden of religious bullies, religious bullies. Most of chapter 12 involves Jesus in controversy with the Pharisees. Oh, if you've been around Sunday school long enough, you know that when the term Pharisee appears in the Bible, you're supposed to boo and hiss, Right? Uh, The Pharisees were a group of people. It was a sect, a a religious movement. They were not uh, professionals. They weren't priests or scribes. They would have regular jobs as carpenters or fishermen or whatever they did. Uh, But they seemed to have an awful lot of free time because there were always Pharisees around hassling Jesus. Did these guys never work? I just wonder about that sometimes. But uh, uh, they were a group, uh, signature to their group was that they take the commands, they took the commands of God very seriously. They obeyed, they knew and obeyed God's commands. In fact, they take them so seriously, took them so seriously, they did not want to violate the commands at all. So they did something called fencing the law fencing the law if this was the command for so example if God said go this far and no further the Pharisees would say well let's make another rule that would keep us far away from God's commands we don't want to break God's commands so we're gonna we're gonna fence the law we're gonna put our own fences around the law so that we don't get even close to breaking one of God's commands uh, the Pharisees uh, did that, and that's why they had so many rules, so many extra rules. Now, we need to be careful because the Pharisees are the villains in the Gospels. Clearly, they are, but we take, we followers of Jesus take God's commands seriously, too. And, and we should read the Pharisees about the Pharisees and consider that the temptations that they faced as they take God's, took God's commands seriously are also temptations that we face. It is easy, it is easy when you take God's word, God's command seriously to use them not as a guide or light or food, but to use them as weapons to slash and devour and terrorize one another. A good example of how they did that is, of course, has to do with the Sabbath. That's the questions uh, that Jesus is, is facing right here, rules about the Sabbath. Here's the rule about the Sabbath. Let's look at it. It's in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. Here is what Moses, what God told Moses to tell the people about the seventh day of the week, the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. And just to be sure, he's going to list everybody you know. You don't work and, and no one should be working. Here's the list. On it you shall do no, not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in the town, no one, no one, not your brother, not your cousin, not your uncle, not your grandma, no one should be working. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, if you look, there are three specific prohibitions about the Sabbath. There's this general one, don't work. No work. And then there's an example of a man who was picking up sticks on the Sabbath and uh, was condemned for it. So no work, and that includes picking up sticks. Nothing about Legos, but sticks are forbidden. No picking up sticks. Then... Third, there's an example of someone who's lighting a fire, and uh, that was forbidden on the Sabbath. So these are the three specific biblical prohibitions about the Sabbath. No work in general, no picking up sticks, no lighting fires. But remember the Sabbath, uh, the Pharisees wanted to fence the law so that no work, we want to get as far away from work as we possibly can. What rules should we make so that no one works? Because we don't want to work. We don't want to break God's law. What counts as work? They argued for pages and pages and pages of ancient material. We have it still. Uh, What is work? Think about carrying something. Is carrying an object work? They said that if it was heavy enough that you had to lift it up on your shoulder to carry it, that was work. But if you just could carry it in your arms like this, then it wasn't work. They said that if you carried something from one house to another, that was work. But if you carried it in your own house, that's not work. They said, so is walking work? Well, um, only if you go so far, according to the Pharisees. So they had an ancient uh, regulation of how far you could walk on the Sabbath. They would call it the Sabbath day's journey. And if you walked any further than that, you were you were working. Or they had uh, very detailed rules. You could not drag a chair across the ground because if you dragged a chair across the ground, the legs of the chair would move the dirt, and that's too much like plowing, and you can't work on the Sabbath. Same thing with spitting. You could not spit on the Sabbath because when your spit hits the ground, it moves the dirt, and that's just like plowing, so you can't spit on the Sabbath either. No work. And the Pharisees made rules, 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 rules and you have to obey all of the rules that's how you show that you take God seriously and the Sabbath was really important to the Pharisees because the Sabbath was one of the three great signs of Jewish identity they did not have their own nation they didn't have their own king but they did have the Sabbath and they had circumcision and they had dietary laws and the Pharisees were masters at keeping all of them and fencing all of those rules if you're familiar with the rest of the New Testament, of course, you might recognize the Sabbath uh, uh, circumcision and food laws show up in Paul's letters as the early church, the Jews and the Gentiles together try to get along uh, with these marks of Jewish identity. Is it restful to follow all these rules, to have all those rules and to follow them? Is that rest, is that really what God had in mind when he said, enjoy the Sabbath, keep it holy, and the Pharisees come along and say, and follow these 12,000 rules. Jesus is confronting religious bullies. He, uh, remember, he offered a yoke. The Pharisees, the people were already under the yoke of the Pharisees, and it was heavy. And Jesus comes, and he brings his own yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you, and my yoke is a yoke of rest. And I want to talk to you for the rest of our time from chapter 12 about receiving the rest that God promises How do we receive the rest that God promises? Matthew, having recorded Jesus' invitation, is now going to uh, unpack what it means to receive the rest that Jesus promises. First of all, it means understanding the greatness of Jesus. Understanding the greatness of Jesus. Now, let me explain what I mean here. Jesus and the disciples are walking one day, we don't know what day, and they're walking through a grain field, we don't know why, but the disciples were hungry. We don't know why they're hungry, they didn't have enough breakfast, I'm not sure. But they're walking through a grain field and they reach out and grab a stalk of grain, break it off so that they have the grain at the top, and uh, put it in their hands and you you rub it between your hands like this and you blow on it and blow off the uh, husk and then you can eat the grain. It's an ancient form of granola with no raisins, no M&Ms, but it would be crunchy and it would be somewhat filling. But the Pharisees, who always seem to be lurking around, see what's going on and they say, Aha! I don't know if they said aha. Aha! Jesus, don't you know that your disciples are breaking the law because you know what they're doing? They're reaping, they're threshing, and they're winnowing. They're farming, and that is wrong they're working. Now think about <clears throat> think with me about how Jesus could have responded at this moment in time. He could have gone after their rules, right? He could have said, "Oh for Pete's sake. I don't know if Jesus ever said oh for Pete's sake. Peter's right there, right? Oh for Pete's sake. Your rules are ridiculous. Your rules are ridiculous. This is crazy. These men are not farmers. They're not out here trying to earn an extra buck. They're not, they're not working for a living. They're hungry, and they're, they're take, picking some of the grain and eating it. Your rules are stupid. Jesus did not say that. Um, instead, he's going to talk about their rulemaking tendencies a little bit later. We'll, we'll get to that. But instead, he reminds them about an incident in the life of David. Great King David in the Old Testament. You can read this story in Samuel. Enough of the details are here in Matthew chapter 11. David was on the run and he comes to the tabernacle. He's on the run with some of his companions. David's often on the run with companions in the book of Samuel. And he comes to the tabernacle. They didn't pack provisions and he and his men are hungry and he knows there's bread in the tabernacle. Now you'll remember this. You can keep this straight in your mind. In the Old Testament, there are two structures that have a similar purpose. There is the tabernacle, which is a tent that was built by Moses and the people at the instructions of God. It was the tent into which God was going to live with the people as they wandered around. God had a tent. They had a tent. It was God's house. Then later, Solomon builds the temple. It's a stone building. It's in Jerusalem. It's God's house in Jerusalem. So there's the tabernacle and the temple, and they're both God's Houses. One's the temporary structure uh, necessary when the people were moving around. One's in Jerusalem when the people moved into the land and settled there. Both of them, though, function as God's house. And in God's house, the lights are always on. His servants are always working. There's food always cooking. And there's always bread. The priests were commanded to keep bread in the tabernacle on a special table. And once a week they changed the bread. And that bread was special consecrated bread that could be eaten only by the priests. It was part of their salary. They were to eat this bread. They and they alone were to eat this bread. Except there's this scene in Samuel when David is hungry. And he goes in and he eats the bread with his companions. Now, uh, Jesus says, don't, don't you know, David, David was not condemned for what he did, eating that bread he was not supposed to eat. If I had been a Pharisee and I was standing there, I might have some objections. I might say, yeah, 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 but that doesn't apply because that wasn't the Sabbath. And we're not talking about consecrated bread here. And we're not talking about David and his companions. We actually are talking about you and your disciples. Maybe that's actually though Jesus follow me here David and his companions broke the rules and they're not condemned why not ask a good Pharisee why does the Bible not condemn David for doing what he did the Pharisees would say well I mean that's David it's David David God's God's great king it's David up. there's got to be if there's exceptions for anybody there's got to be exemptions for david and his companions and jesus says aha now you're onto something i want you to think about me and my companions and david and his companions and i want you to compare the two you're asking the wrong questions pharisees you're starting with the wrong assumptions He's making a claim about himself. He's he's making a claim about him and his disciples that like David and his companions, that he's putting himself on the same level as David. I'm not sure the Pharisees realize that, but actually the claims that Jesus makes get worse or would have gotten worse in their eyes. Verse five, haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? So the priests have to offer sacrifices on the Sabbath. There are commands about Sacrifices that must be offered on the Sabbath. The priests are working on the Sabbath and they're innocent. Why? Because sacrifice rules trump Sabbath rules, temple rules trump Sabbath rules. And then Jesus says, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. And he says in verse 8, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. You should put me in the same category as David. And in fact, I'm greater than David. I'm greater than the temple. I'm greater than the Sabbath itself. You're barking up the wrong tree. You are trying to take your rules, Jesus says to them. And you're trying to encapsulate me under the rules that you have made up that you think honor God. But I want you to know that like David, the rules fall differently on me than they, fell, than they fall on others. Uh, like the temple, exemptions apply. I am not to be controlled by your uh, rules. He is very much, Jesus is very much controlled by God's rules. He obeys God's word perfectly in every way, but he's bursting out the categories of the Pharisees. He's breaking their yoke. Their rules are oppressive and binding, and Jesus is none of those things. He's greater than the categories that they have. The Pharisees are thinking so small in this passage. They're thinking about Jesus and his disciples and evaluating them as it were and the rules of tic-tac-toe and whether or not the Pharisee, uh, the disciples as they're playing this game are following the rules of tic-tac-toe and Jesus says, no, I came and I brought Disney World with me. And the Pharisees are saying, yes, but the X's and O's are not right in the center of the box and Jesus says, Space Mountain, Space Mountain. You're, you're thinking so small. Now, here's the connection to rest. Receiving the rest that Jesus promises involves recognizing how great he is and how that greatness changes the way you see reality. Jesus is great, and, and and, and recognizing his greatness puts everything else in a different perspective, especially those things that are causing your unrest. Especially those things that are agitating you, tempting you, trying you, troubling you. Jesus is greater than all of those things. Um, When I was uh, in uh, grade school, I had a friend who had a Newfoundland, a big black Newfoundland named Bear. If you want to frighten a child, why would you get a big black dog and name it Bear? I hated to go to my friend's house because Bear was there. Massive dog. Now, had I known then what I know now about Newfoundlands, I probably would have been very excited to to know Bear. But I remember being terrified of Bear. Now, I am the proud owner of a 75-pound Bernese Mountain Dog. And uh, she is... Small for her breed, uh, but she's still a big dog, and I remember how big she is when I walk around town, and people who are coming the other way around the side, they cross the street to avoid Stella and I, as we, I don't think it's me, as we walk down the street, this big black dog that I had. They don't know Stella is a softie. But I own this 75-pound dog, and all other dogs look small in comparison to Stella, I used to think that retrievers, Labradors, were were good-sized dogs. Now they're just little things. And Chihuahuas look more like rats than they ever used to to me. Because I have the real dog. I have a big dog. I have Stella. Jesus is so great that he changes how you see everything else. Everything else is small in comparison to him. Everything in your life that is daunting and challenging is small. He has the power to give the rest that he promises. I learned it when I was uh, probably four years old, that little chorus. Some of you know it too. My God is so big, so strong, and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. And for the past 40 years or so, I've been trying to see how that little chorus applies in so much of my life. Now, I I know that if you're weary and burdened, you don't need me to tell you to do something else. You don't need me to give you a list of more things to do. You need those burdens to be released. But can I suggest something to you that if you have a quiet moment, that you pray and ask God to show you how great his son is so that you get some perspective on the things that are troubling you, that are agitating you and giving you your unrest Jesus is great. In this passage, he's greater than David. He's greater than the temple. He's greater than Sabbath. He wants to break the categories of how you see every challenge that is in your life. He can give you rest because he's so great. Now we need to pick up the pace, don't we? Let's move on. How else do we receive the rest God promises? Number two, it involves embracing the rules of Jesus. Embracing the rules of Jesus. Some of you are weary and burdened because you feel like God's rules are oppressive to you and hurting you and trying to control you, especially if what is weary and burdening to you is some sort of addiction or if you're dealing with some sort of desire issue, God's rules are crimping my style, they're hurting me, they're keeping me from doing what I know would make me happy. Those are the lines that an addict, that runs through the the mind of an addict pretty consistently. Uh, But Jesus wants to talk about rules, and the first thing he does is he he speaks to the Pharisees about their rules. Verse 7, If you had known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, that's a quote from Hosea 6, you would not have condemned the innocent. Here's what rule makers tend to forget. You're a rule maker maybe in your house or at work. Rule makers tend to forget what rules are for. And here, Jesus is telling the Pharisees that God's rules are for what? They're to express his mercy. They're an expression of his kindness, expression of his grace. They're not chains to bind you. They are medicine to heal you, food to nourish you, light to guide you, fences to protect you. That's what God's rules are. Uh, Dane Ortland said, when uh, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, the yoke that Jesus offers is a burden like a life preserver is to a drowning swimmer. Jesus is not saying that God's rules are voluntary or they're flexible or conditional. They're very serious, but they are an expression of his mercy, his kindness, his rest. I hope you teach this to your kids because your kids Like you have the same bent in their hearts. The bent is that God's rules, and by extension your rules, are oppressive and hurtful and ruinous to their happiness. Ever had one of your children in a fit of uh, rage that you're ruining my life? Your rules are ruining my life. We all have this bent to think that about God's rules, and can I say that our culture is just increasingly moving in this direction. One of the ways that we know God's will is he has written his will into nature, into the very fabric of our bodies. And there is this vast movement in our culture to believe that the body is irrelevant. And if, my, if I feel a different way than my body is, then I need to change my body. And, and, and anybody who tells me otherwise is being oppressive and not letting me express myself. And they're being ruinous and harmful to my life. That's the bent that we are on. And actually, it's part of the oldest lie in all of creation. When Satan tempted Eve in the garden, she said, God's not interested in your best. He wants to hurt you. He's trying to hold you back. You need to express yourself. We're bent to operate on this principle that God's rules are here to hurt us. When I buy plants in the spring, I don't do it every year, but when I buy plants in the spring to put out in my landscaping, I uh, very carefully read the tag. How am I going to keep this plant alive? How often does it need to be watered? What kind of soil does it need? I don't know think about soil, but I do know about light. It does this Should I plant this in full sun, part, part sun, shade? What, what, what do I need? What are the rules I need to do to keep this plant alive? And God in his kindness has given his his word so that we might thrive in the world that he has made. And his rules are an expression of his kindness to us. That's hard to remember because the rules sometimes feel like weary burdens, feel like worse burdens. But they're an expression of God's kindness. It's kind of related to the third way in which we receive the rest that Jesus promises. It involves recognizing the intentions of Jesus, recognizing the intentions of Jesus And in verse nine, Jesus goes into a synagogue, and he's therefore worship in the synagogue. And the Pharisees, the other Gospels make this clear. The Pharisees have a plant in the congregation, a guy with a withered hand, and they kind of push him in front of Jesus with his withered hand. He can't work. Just imagine how difficult this was. And uh, the implication: Jesus, are you going to heal him? Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? See, the Pharisees had rules. They had a lot of rules. A doctor could practice his medicine on the Sabbath as long as it was a life-saving operation. It had to be a life-saving thing for uh, uh, someone to, to practice medicine on the Sabbath. This guy doesn't have a life-threatening condition. So, Jesus, what are you going to do with our rules? Remember the passage is built on Comparisons. Jesus compared to David, Jesus compared to the temple, Jesus compared to the Sabbath. Now he makes a comparison between sheep and human beings. If you lost your sheep on the Sabbath, or if your sheep was in a pit on the Sabbath, you would get your sheep out. Yes, we would. How much more should I not rescue this human being who is worth so much more to God than a sheep? Comparison. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Their error is they don't know this, they don't realize it, that the Sabbath is for good, it's for doing good. Here's the connection to rest. Jesus has the power and the authority to command you how to live. He has the wisdom to know what is good, and he has the intentionality of blessing, of bringing that goodness. Here's an opportunity for Jesus to express goodness, and that's what he's here for, to bring goodness This passage actually makes me think of one of my favorite uh, verses in the Bible, Psalm 25, 8. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in his ways. The Lord is upright. He knows the right way to go. He knows the right path to take. And he's good. He's willing to instruct sinners in that path to go. He is both able and willing to teach sinners how to live. And here's Jesus. He's able to heal, and he's willing to do it because he is good. He's good. Now, this passage that we just read ends with this long quotation from Isaiah chapter 42. Um, Here's uh, how it begins. Uh, uh, Well, the question is, what does Jesus use his power to do? It begins with this controversy. The Pharisees are going to go out there plotting to murder him. Jesus knows about this, and he withdraws. In the Gospels, Jesus always withdraws. When the Pharisees are planning and plotting, Jesus, when the temperature rises, Jesus pulls back into a, a cooler place. He does that every time until the end of the Gospels when it is his time to go to the cross to be crucified. And um, Matthew says that this, this pulling back is an expression of prophecy, a fulfillment of what Isaiah said about him, that God's beloved servant, how he will he respond? Verse 19, he'll not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. What that means is he's not going to argue. He's not going to shout. He's not going to be out on the street uh, causing a ruckus. How does Jesus change the world? Not by arguing, not by rioting, Not by violence. How do the followers of Jesus change the world? Not by arguing and not by fighting and not by quarreling and not by rioting, not by violence. He doesn't quarrel or cry. Pharisees do that. Pharisees plot and plan and attack. That's what Pharisees do. Pharisees use people like pawns use people with withered hands like pawns to try to trick people. That's what Pharisees do. That's not what Jesus does. In fact, he doesn't break bruised reeds and he doesn't snuff out smoldering wicks. Jesus doesn't use or trample over broken, hurting people. He restores them, he lifts them, he heals them. This is his intention's. In time, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to take an ax to the root of all human suffering. He's going to do it on the cross when he, for our sake, offers himself as a substitute for us, bearing the wrath of God that we, owe because, uh, that we deserve because of our sin. He dies and rises again and gives life and forgiveness to all who will receive it. It's Jesus' intention to do you good at the cost of his life. He came to bless and heal and lift and restore. Verse 21, in his name the nations will put their hope. The Jews may reject him. The Jews following the leadership of the Pharisees may reject him. But the nations, the Gentiles, the rest of us, we find in him hope. We hope in him. Jesus promised rest. Are you weary and burdened? He's greater than those worries and those burdens. Hope, hope in him. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we confess again like we did last week that there are times in which we feel just a deep bone weariness. We're weary and burdened over many things. Some of us are weary and burdened as an expression of the good things that we're trying to accomplish. Raising our children, it's bone wearying sometimes. Some of us are weary because we live in a broken world and there's no help On television, there's no help in the newspaper. There's not much help on the radio for us to be faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. And there's certainly no help in the swamp of the internet in following Jesus. Lord, we're weary and burdened sometimes by how we treat one another, using your word to terrorize. So we come before you again asking that you would help us to receive this rest that you promised, Lord Jesus. Help us by giving us a vision to recognize how supreme you are over all of our worries and all of our burdens and all the things that tire us out. Give us rest, the rest of your yoke in which we learn how to live from you. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.